They were high school sweethearts that got married and had two kids. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Brunigs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. This is Liz Brunig. This is my husband, Matt. Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing well, staying healthy. We are uh, in the, I think, you know, what we can think about as the second phase of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, at least as the United States is experiencing it, in that now we're having uh, policy responses on a pretty large scale, including on a federal scale. Matt wants to talk to you about the bailout. Uh, Matt, what are your thoughts? Go off. Oh, uh, yeah. So, you know, a lot of people ask me questions about this on my take, that sort of thing. Um, I've kind of already laid some of this out on people's policy project, but I'll just kind of lay out, you know, lay it out again, I guess, um, and talk about some specifics since we actually have some of them now, or at least what we expect to be, uh, the specific reactions, uh, though the bill has not yet passed. Uh, in the House or been signed uh, by Trump. Uh, So the first thing I think is important to emphasize when we're thinking about a bailout like this is we have to understand that this is a unique situation. This is not like a recession, um, like a normal recession. Uh, And I think a lot of the policy responses people have been talking about have kind of just uh, repeated normal ways of thinking about things without uh, specifically uh, taking into consideration what we're up against. In a normal recession, what you're trying to do is get more people working, increase output, increase demand, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, because the goal is to get to reduce unemployment, to increase growth, uh, to bring the economy closer to capacity, et cetera, et cetera. That is not actually the situation that we are in uh, currently, um, we are not tr- trying to increase employment. We're not trying to increase growth. Uh, in fact, uh, we are essentially trying to achieve mass unemployment. Uh, that that's that's the uh, intended outcome of what we're trying to do. So some of the numbers and even some of the discussions are a little bit weird, right? Like uh, this week we had uh, around 3 million new unemployment claims, which <laughs> is like 10 times the normal amount we get each week. And I think uh, five times the record uh, amount that, that we've ever had. And this is sort of, uh, th- well, this is bad. We, we would wish that this was lower. And it's like, eh, so- sort of. I mean, in some ways, we kind of wish it was higher, don't we? We want, we want less people working now than used to be working. Not just 3 million fewer people, but way, way more or way fewer people than that. So that's the first thing to start. So I, I don't know the analogy to think about this because normally we think about stimulus 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 we need to stimulate the economy um, what's going to get growth what's going to get employment what's going to get output 
Um, I think the most probably helpful analogy that people have come up with who have thought about this and are sort of on the same page as me is to say that we're trying to achieve an economic freeze, right? So instead of trying to uh, grow the economy, we're trying to freeze it in place with all of its arteries and everything intact, all of its uh, relationships and connections intact so that we can later thaw it out and, and, and have it run run as normal. That's more of what we're after. So with that being the case, then the question becomes, what do you do about that? And like I said in my piece, and what I think actually the bill in question uh, got right was what you want to lean on more than anything is unemployment benefits. Now you can do this explicitly, which is what they did by beefing up unemployment insurance. Um, Unemployment insurance in the US, usually if you lose your job, um, through you know no fault of your own or whatever, uh, you get somewhere between like forty to fifty-five percent of what you used to be making in unemployment benefits up to a certain cap. Um, and they've basically just said, all right, we're going to keep that, but we're also going to add another six hundred dollars per week for your check. So you think about forty percent of your prior <laughs> weekly earnings plus six hundred for a check. Um, and that brings you up to 100% income replacement for a lot of people. And for some people, more than 100% income replacement, meaning that their unemployment check is going to actually be higher than the check they used to make in work. That caused a little bit of a, a, a hubbub uh, briefly uh, in the Senate. Uh, Bernie Sanders gave this fiery speech saying, you know, why are you guys trying to nickel and dime these poor people? This is completely ridiculous, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and eventually it's, it's, it sort of went through. The other thing that you needed to do with unemployment benefits, and I, I, I called for this on People's Policy Project, was you needed to create essentially a second kind of unemployment benefit that goes to people who are not typically eligible this bill does that, though I think some of the reporting on it is a little bit misleading because it kind of says, oh, this bill also covers uh, gig workers and uh, freelancers and that sort of thing. And in fact, if you read the text of the bill, it basically says that states can come up with a way of compensating people who don't normally get unemployment benefits and it needs to you know, come up with a way and get an agreement with the Secretary of Labor. So it actually doesn't have much content to it. It's basically left to the states to decide uh, how it's going to expand benefits to the people who are typically ineligible. Uh, so that could be very good. It could be very bad, depending on the state uh, in question. Um, but yeah, so I think the reason why you have to understand that unemployment benefits are, are the key reaction here is that we're not trying, again, to, to broadly stimulate the economy. We're trying to keep people going in, wh- in, in the way that they normally go. So if you're on Social Security, you don't necessarily need any more than you normally get. You've already got a check. Apparently, you're already living on it. And so you don't necessarily need uh, more. If you manage to stay in your job, for instance, if you are an essential worker, as they're now calling them, at uh, grocery stores or in the supply chains or whatever, again, you don't necessarily need more than you normally do. So, but there are obviously people who are going to fall through the cracks of unemployment benefits. So the next logical thing would be to say, well, we should make a universal cash payment to people to cover the uh, people who might maybe lose hours or maybe they just they don't really fit into the normal 
mold uh, and, and are ineligible for unemployment benefits. And they did that as well. 1200 per adult, 500 per child, up to a certain cap. I'd like to get rid of that cap, obviously, but but that's where you are. And I like this is a very rational reaction, I would I would say, to uh, what's being asked. So on the like individual side, I think things could have been better. I would have included paid family leave, paid sick leave. Um, but the idea of a way more generous unemployment benefits plus a, a universal cash payment is a good structure. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, I actually thought that was pretty rational. Um, but then you have the business side of the deal. Right, Uh-oh. So we've got the money to households, that's one prong, and then you've got the business side of the deal. And that can be broken up into two groups. You have the sort of small business category, which is businesses up to 500 employees, it looks like. Um, and then you have uh, the big business category. The small business category, they're saying that they're giving them loans. Really, they're giving them grants because these are loans that can be forgiven, provided you use them on payroll costs, utilities, rent, whatever. Um, and so it's basically hundreds of billions of dollars of grants to small business. Um, (laughs) one of the things that I have not seen anyone point out yet, but looks to be the case to me is that this includes scenarios such as I am an independent contractor who works for Uber. Um, I can take out a small business loan, uh, under this scheme because I sort of run my own business. Um, and 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 then I could pay myself the money from the loan and then have it forgiven, and so in that sense it becomes like an unemployment insurance scheme. Um, but you know that's also clearly what they're kind of going after here because they yeah. want to uh, keep people on payroll um, uh, who aren't really working, which is to say that's unemployment benefits, isn't it? So it's become. The, the small business part become basically a second unemployment benefit program, but only for workers who work in small businesses. Um, for larger businesses, um, you have two little, you have one very big fund, essentially, that is just going to be loans. And it looks like they basically just let the Treasury Department do whatever they want with these loans. Um this is a very unfortunate outcome. I was pushing for equity, equity, equity. Any loan should come with equity. Um, <clears throat> there was actually a very negative reaction to that from the Boeing CEO, which was quite funny. Um, and saying, well, if you demand equity, we're not going to take your money and we'll, we'll get our money elsewhere. Okay. Uh, yeah, to which the response is, okay, fine. Right? Um, so... That's a very unfortunate outcome. It's very unfortunate that there aren't uh, very many strings attached to this money. It's very unfortunate that, uh, you know, there's a lot of discretion. Um, Like, I would certainly not have put it that way. Um, And then there is another very smaller uh, one for the big businesses that are for specific industries, which airlines are the most obvious. That one also does not appear to require equity. I'd have to look closely again. But Steve Mnuchin says he is going to get equity for it. So that is interesting. We could become at least owners of the major airlines, um, which which would be fun. But that's basically to me. I've never had an airline before. Yeah. I mean, other countries have them. You know, Finland owns Finnair. Russia owns Aeroflot. <clears throat> Does um, Ireland own Aer Lingus? I, maybe. I don't know. It's not uncommon for countries Man, to speaking own. speaking of... Big honorable mention uh, to Ireland. 
They're whipping ass over there. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, they've nationalized the hospitals. Yeah, good job. Um, and so, you know. To all of our Irish listeners, congratulations on your new hospitals. Yeah, you know, it reminds me, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, Norway nationalized its hospitals, though not. It reminds f- me of that, Matt. <laughs> though not for like a particular reason. Um, and a lot of the hospitals, maybe all of them, were already publicly owned, but just by municipalities. But they decided it would be rather better for them to be centrally owned. As that's what I, that's what I've read, at least. Um, Sometimes you got to make a point as well. Uh, that's all uh, good news uh in terms of uh at least we're mobilizing a response at this point right it's no longer just like bear panic and municipalities and states trying to come up with um you know ad hoc responses at least there's something federal happening yeah on the economic on the side, economic side the um, bailout for <laughs> especially big businesses is very weak in the sense that there's so much more you could get for yeah. it and they're just not um at the same time you know i don't know what do you make of this like some of the reactions are a little bit strange like there's some people who seem to have the position that well these companies should have been saving money like if you if you read and this is maybe where it sort of might be useful to do some debunking or at least kind of give my opinion on some right. areas where people have gone off there are so one organization in particular has been putting out these uh, spreadsheets that show just how much these companies have bought back their stock Name in the and last shame. year. Name and shame. Um, I don't, I think it's called the Economic Liberties Organization or something mm, like that. That's not a good sign. Um, and there's this impression that, well, these companies, they should have sort of like a household had, you know, a bunch of cash sitting on their books and it's like, I don't you know, big companies are not like households. As much as people on the left like to make that argument for the government, it's it's also true of, of especially big companies. Big companies in normal times don't need to have like cash in a bank account. They can get cash whenever they want in the bond markets or the commercial paper markets. So what is the point of loading up on cash? And also, they don't really load up on cash. What we call cash is really them buying other, quote-unquote, marketable securities. So they go out and buy other bonds and that sort of thing. And I guess, you know, you could have all these corps just, like, with a bunch of treasury bonds on their balance sheets as, like, security against a rainy day. But I don't know. It just That seems strange. And it's also strange if you believe, as I think this organization does, that, well, we want company, we want big companies not to get so big. That that's against economic liberty. Well, buybacks, which is another way of doing dividends, funnels money out of the company and keeps it from getting bigger. So that's sort of like what you're trying to accomplish. Otherwise, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger because they never disgorge their profits. They just reinvest them, which is not necessarily bad in my view, but would be bad in their view. So, you know, this is a sort of a fluke, weird situation where all the credit markets seize up. They're unable to get cash. And to say that as a general matter... We want or we want these big companies stockpiling cash in normal times is a little it's just a little weird. Um, the last thing I'll point out I'll, I'll talk about because I've been asked this quite a bit is Rashida Tlaib's uh, proposal, which was uh, basically two thousand dollars 
per person as an initial payment and then $1,000 after that. Mm-hmm. So it becomes essentially a $1,000 a month basic income, I guess, with a $1,000 bonus on your first payment. And uh, I thought that was, that was you know, a solid idea as far as the kind of universal cash component of this. Um, in her proposal, she also included... Well, we're going to pay for it with $2 trillion coins. And a lot of people have Hell asked me about yeah. this. And there's a few things about this that are a little strange. Um, well, I mean, it's I thought it was a good idea in and of itself because it helped bring attention to the proposal. There were actually dozens and dozens of people putting out proposals. And uh, very few of them got attention, but hers did. So I thought that was a clever way to break out of the mold. I think the coin thing is a little bit confusing because if you remember, the coin first got floated during Barack Obama's administration when there was a debt ceiling fight. And and it's it maybe is a little bit too technical or boring, but what happened in a debt ceiling fight is you basically have two laws that are fighting with one another. One law is telling uh, the executive that it needs to spend money, right? They pass these laws that say you got to spend this much on the you know EPA, this much on healthcare, this much on education, whatever. They have these spending bills that are passed, and the executive has to follow them. And then they have this other bill, this other law that says you can't go into debt by more than X, Y, or Z. And these two laws then become in weird conflict because one is telling you you must spend and one is telling you you can't spend. Or at least, and here's where the trick comes in, you can't spend in a way that increases the national debt. And so the question is, what do you do about this? And Obama, unfortunately, sort of just gave in uh, to Republicans and was like, okay, well, I guess I can't spend, so we're going to have to shut the government down until we can get this debt ceiling thing resolved, et cetera, et cetera. They then used that as leverage to, to get austerity pushed through, which was a sort of disastrous thing to push through at that moment. It was a, it was a bad decision. As much as people want to say oh, Barack did you know, all he could, he, he obviously failed in that case. So where does the coin come in there? Well, the coin comes in there because in that situation, you could mint a coin that was worth a trillion dollars or whatever, use that coin to pay for the government's spending. I have to pause you here for a minute. Uh there's not enough platinum to make such a coin. That was what someone said at the time. Remember, I remember this many years ago. <laughs> there was this whole tweet thing that was like, this would be, you know, incredibly expensive. And yeah. and we would, and they seemed to believe that they, yeah, you needed a coin <laughs> that whose metal value, if yeah. you were to sell it on the market, was yeah. worth a trillion dollars. Well, that's dollars. how coinage works. <laughs> like each penny is worth one cent of copper. That's true. That's true. Uh, same thing with nickel. Uh, you know, it's, it's how it is. It's like a piece of gold that yeah, you crack yeah. off like a pirate doubloon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You break off pieces if you need like a fractional amount. Yeah, it's pieces um, of eight. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Onward. Anyways, the idea was this this is a way to solve this problem because you can meet your spending obligations with the coin and the coin doesn't count to the national debt so you don't break the debt ceiling. So it was a way to solve that impasse and also basically just say, fuck you guys and this and congress who are wanting me to do austerity i'm just not going to do it i think you could have just also just kept spending through the debt ceiling and Hell say yeah. 
well, yeah, you've got the one bill that says I can't take on more debt than this, but you've got this other bill that says I have to spend and you've not given me any other way to spend. So you've created this impossible situation where constitutionally I have to follow your spending laws. Constitutionally, I suppose I have to follow your debt ceiling laws, but they're in conflict. So I have to pick one of them. That's what I would say. Just just do it. Um, what's going to happen? Are they going to sue you? I mean, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But that was the solution. Right, was for the executive to unilaterally create a coin that allowed it to keep spending without breaching the debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. In the instant case, we don't have a debt ceiling issue. The debt ceiling is not even at play. And the proposal before was to have the executive unilaterally create a coin to pay for it. Um, here you're creating the coin as part of the legislation. So even if you did have a debt ceiling issue, you could just increase the debt ceiling in the legislation without creating the coin. So it's a, it's a gimmick in that sense. Broadly, beyond that, it's, it's otherwise no different than the normal way you would do something like this, which is that you would issue bonds, $2 trillion worth of bonds, and you would either direct the Fed or the Fed would direct itself to purchase those bonds in the open market. And so think about it. You create $2 billion worth of bonds. The Fed then makes $2 billion worth of cash or $2 trillion worth of cash, buys those bonds. Now the bonds on its balance sheet. Essentially, the Fed is giving you $2 trillion of cash to spend. This is called monetary seniorage. It occurs all the time oh in recessions. Oh, my God, the seniorage. Seniorage. The seniorage. seniorage. The seniorage. The seniorage. Yeah. There was a period where Matt was... Uh, <clears throat> he was reading and researching about seniorage quite a bit and uh he he had looked up the word to see how to pronounce it uh in, in speech and he he clicked the pronunciation guide on the dictionary.com thing and then he also played it at me like 500 million <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> he just did that a million t- okay All right. okay okay yeah Senior. okay Seniorage. Yeah, all right. Oh. Okay. <clears throat> the coin would be the same thing, except instead of a bond as the uh, instrument that the Fed purchased, they they purchased the coin. Um, so, what, you know, what's accomplished? <laughs> How big would the coin have to be? Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a, I, I, our friend Peter Gallon, who's a friend of the pod, said that if we were going to do this, it would at least have to be room sized. Uh, oh, yeah. In fact, one of the questions we were asked is whose face would you put on the trillion dollar coin? Seniorage. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know what you would have to do. Like, could you just find a piece? Could you just find, like, any physical material and be like, here's the coin? Or do you have to, like, actually make it look... Does it need to say one trillion on it? Yeah, I want to see um, Mnuchin roll a giant coin from the treasury I will say uh, up to the white house it's sort of weird i mean so the thing that i thought was strange about it i mean beyond the fact that well the purpose of the coin was this unilateral executive maneuver that's not even relevant in this case that was the initial purpose of the coin um two you can create bonds and have the fed buy those and that's the same thing as creating a coin and having the fed buy that is there's this weird thing and I've never really clear what to make of like the modern monetary theory crowd because I think they were like aha here you go boom because like, I think yeah. there was they were influ- influential in pushing this yeah and I, and I'm always like what 
I don't know what what you've proved. I don't <laughs> like, yeah. like yeah. See, there you go. There, I've just shown you that this this correct. But then when you read their articles, they're like, yeah, this would be the same thing as issuing a bond and having the Fed buy it, but just making point that you know that's not necessarily debt. It's like no one, no economist has ever thought that was. Money printer go like no one thinks that like and you go back to this thing where it's like okay this is a movement that basically like if you're a moron who's never really heard of seniorage that's me and you kind of back into it like through YouTube videos you're like (laughs) whoa but like never use the word he's suggesting that like the world's leading mmt theorists are just youtube educated yeah yeah well not the leading (laughs) ones but a lot of them um because they don't use the word warren mosler who's supposedly the guy who like you know came up with this or whatever fascinating character you see him talk about it and it's just like this it's a perfect case of like this is a fairly smart guy who's like a hedge fund guy who otherwise didn't necessarily get education in like monetary and macro stuff which is not abnormal for people who do that job and he kind of figured this out on his own like and like you finally figured out and you're like if if someone had sat down with warren very early on and been like warren do you know this idea called seniorage are you familiar with that? Are you familiar with this concept called monetary seniorage? Like we could have, we could have saved ourselves all of this hassle, but instead he's like, he independently discovered seniorage and created a whole movement of morons okay. who don't, who seem to like s- celebrate, like pointing out seniorage. Like who doesn't know about seniorage among <laughs> people who write about this? Uh, it's and and it all comes back to the same thing because you're always like, well, what's the practical upshot, right? Yeah. If you make a coin, and then you have the gov- the Fed buy it, isn't that the same thing as having bonds and have them buy it? And it's like, uh, yeah, but it doesn't go against the debt limit. It's like the other one. There's no debt limit. One, that's not even in play right now. And two, it's never counted as debt. We have debt understood as debt owed to the rest of the world i.e non-intergovernmental debt that's all we already account for all of this yeah and then the risk of creating a coin or a bond and buying it with cash and then spending it which is to say essentially spending two trillion dollars of new cash into the economy is that you would create inflation yeah and then now with the coin it's a little bit more complicated because you're like well if we create all this inflation with the coin, how do we get the money back out of the economy? With the bond, it's easy because you sell the bond into the economy. So then you bring cash back out. And they're like, well, but you could just... So with the coin, you can't do that. That's the risk. Um, and they're like, well, it's no risk at all because you could always just create bonds and then sell those and then just hold on to the cash. And you're like, we've just ra- literally just wound up exactly where we started. Because in the one, you create the bond... <laughs> You sell it for cash and then you buy it for cash and then you have the bond and you can sell it back out if you need to. And yours, you create a coin, you spend the money in and then you could sell a bond out to get the cash if you need to. It's literally the same thing. And if you had to create a new bond to create to get the cash back out, then you're increasing the debt limit. Then, then now it is debt. 
in the normal way we think about it. Well, you and your debate tricks may have succeeded this time, Matt. So it's like, you know, it's like, well, you could do it through seniorage. You could do it through seniorage. And like, yeah, but uh, you that's no different than anything else. And to the extent that seniorage has a problem, it creates inflation. And then to fight inflation, you have to issue bonds or, or do taxes, which then means you're not actually funding it with seniorage, which means we're back where everyone else has started. So... I don't know. I don't want to go on too much on that, but uh, I just, uh, it's totally baffling. I will say I found it very funny. Warren Mosler did put out a tweet that was like, all these people are saying that during a labor supply shock, you should send out a basic income and they're call and, you know, fund it through essentially seniorage and they're calling that MMT. And then he did like a frowny face. Yeah. And you're just like, this is great. Like, yeah. because like no one knows what this means. To the extent that MMT ever meant anything, it was mm. that we're going to have seniorage-funded workfare programs or job guarantee. <laughs> That's what it meant. And it's like, now they're saying seniorage-funded basic income, which they've spent the last decade yeah, or really 20, 30, 40 years just no, no transfer payments, no transfer payments. I'm fucking pissed at transfer payments. <laughs> now they're like, we're doing transfer payments and a coin, and that means it's MMT. And you're just like, what means anything? D- does anything have fixed meanings? And it's so funny to be Moser being like, what? <laughs> this is, I am the MMT. What? That, no, we have not been doing that. And But the media, like, it, it's become basically counter-cyclical monetary and fiscal stimulus. That's what it's become, well, which it is just like AKA uh, Keynesianism. They're adopting my philosophy of uh, you take what you can get on this bitch of an earth. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. But then, so it's just sort of like whatever people who are associated with that as a personality, like it's become a sort of school. Yeah. Whatever they do, that's MMT. And so they could do anything. They could as... MMT to me. Well, because what I found so fascinating is Rashida's proposal is basically in basic income equal to 20% of GDP. That is... Literally, Pavlina Cherneva, who's one of the top tier MMTers, she literally wrote a paper and published it two years ago in which she attacks a proposal to create a UBI equal to 20% of GDP. So, (laughs) Tleb's proposal is literally this exact same thing as the proposal Pavlina wrote a whole paper criticizing two years ago, but Pavlina's like, woohoo, MMT, we're doing it, guys. It's like, you just said you just said you can't do this. You just said this two years ago. And response, of course, they'll be like, well, but the economy is operating under capacity. So, And then in which case it's like, okay, so you're, all you're saying is in, uh, when the economy's under capacity, we can do monetary and economic stimulus, including transfer payments, totally fine. And so what is what all this bitching about transfer payments? Anyways, I don't want to go on too much. We've done 30, 30 on this. I've Good had a God. lot of people ask about it, so hopefully it's interesting. Well, mm-hmm. now we can move into questions. Yeah, Matt. Hey, guys, just wanted to uh, butt in here. Uh, remind everyone that we have premium feeds on Supercast and on Patreon. Uh, go into the show comments, the show details, the show notes, whatever it is. Click on it. Uh, and you can get in on Supercast or Patreon. we got a brand new episode up that we haven't released yet on the free feed. Uh, we don't release everything on the free feed, and you can get it in time. So go into the show notes, 
click the Supercast button or click the Patreon button um, and subscribe. Matt, uh, Matt did an impromptu Q&A uh, call out on the on the Patreon. Uh, if you guys uh, don't regularly visit the page, uh, that's okay because usually there's not much there except the podcast themselves. Well, they get an email when yeah. I post, so yeah. that's why but they... But also some of them just visit the page. I don't know. I you don't know, doubt it. You know, they just it. visit the page to see to what's see up. To see what's going on. Uh, you know, but if in case you missed it, we'll, we'll do this again sometime. But uh, we figured that, you know, one way to kind of uh, lighten the mood around here because things are going pretty rough uh, would be to do a, a good old-fashioned Q&A app. Uh, so just going to run through these. Uh, question number one, what is your Twitch channel's name? Uh, it's Matt and Liz, twitch.tv slash Matt and Liz. Liz has been doing some cooking things on it. I tried to do one last night, and I couldn't really get it working. It was very uh, laggy and whatnot. Um, so, yeah. Liz is going to do more Twitch stuff for the New York Times. Yeah, so. well, uh, so today, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, at one o'clock, I'm going to be doing a live Twitter chat, actually a Periscope thing uh, for the Times. So I'm moving into all the live streaming platforms. It's good. And I have a YouTube channel with one video on it. Click really on that. strange. They didn't you make that on Thanksgiving or something? Click really on odd. that. Click on that. <laughs> odd kind of piece of performance. Share, art. subscribe. All right. Uh, does Matt believe in free will? Uh, pass. I do. Uh, what do you think needs to happen for Bernie to get elected president? I think he needs to get the most delegates. Uh, yeah. Get the most votes. Yeah. Well, you know, Biden's got to fade at this point, I think. I don't know. The primary is completely, completely messed up at this point. It's hard to really think about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. As someone I spoke to yesterday, just like a normie in the wild, told me that no matter what happens with the primary, the outcome's illegitimate, in her opinion. Yeah. Well, definitely the vote, the vote, the votes that were taken last, the last chunk of votes seem illegitimate to me. Yeah. Because people going are scared forward, to go to the polls. And they're going to try to do mailing, I think. And so right. those those could be legitimate if they can do if that. they can fire it up, but they couldn't even get an app rolling in Iowa. I mean. Correctly. Yeah. But mailing is a little easier. It's yeah. a little less uh, sophisticated. Uh, so, you know, maybe they could do that. Um, but a lot of that stuff's been postponed. Um, right now it's, it's hard, it's hard to understand how they're going to co contemplate this. Um, I'm not sure they're going to be able to get all these things done, uh, in time, y y you know, uh, and so if people can really vote by mail, I don't think you can. And then like, it is a serious possibility. I don't think you can necessarily disqualify yeah. the results. Um, but yeah, you know, Biden is... Biden, he set up his TV studio in his house. He's doing interviews now to get his uh, stuff out there. And, and his interviews look very, very bad. Um, you know, it's people, rough. people yeah. have been worrying about this for over a year, even centrist types uh, in both publicly and privately have been talking about Biden does not have it. Um, just, he, you know, like any one of us in old age, he's, he's hit. He's hit an inflection point where he's he's not there, and he struggles to speak. He he gets you know, tired. It seems. I mean, it's 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 a little sad. It's very um, sad, and so that might catch up to him. If that does catch up to him, I don't know what happens at that point. To me, I think yes, you have to then push and say, 
look, if Biden's not able to do it, you got to do Bernie because Bernie is second place and he's a fairly close second at this point. No one else is anywhere near that. To bring in someone else, like some people are saying with Cuomo or whatever, would to me be completely, completely illegitimate. (coughs) Cuomo. Um, A guy who has not run in any race and also is a very conservative Democrat. You'd have more of a case to put Bloomberg in there than Cuomo. Don't waste my time with this this Cuomo shit. All right. Uh... What advice would you give to aspiring lawyers that want to use law to achieve social good? Uh, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity for that. Um, you know, law is like any other market, so you have to think about how you're going to get dollars for what you want to do. And the kind of people who pay money to lawyers are generally not interested in social good per se. Um, you know, there are a few exceptions to that. You could be a public defender realistically that's so under-resourced that you are basically in a lot of cases just checking off a, a box necessary for the constitution to help facilitate plea deals uh you're not really able to, def- to defend now some, someone still has to do it so maybe that'll be you i don't know but it's very low pay for a job where you don't really have the ability to defend people meaningfully um the one shining exception to the, to this, and maybe there are a few, but the one that I'm familiar with and the one I went into was labor law, of course, because unions do have money and there are uh, p- uh, public uh, streams of money for this at the National Labor Relations Board or Department of Labor and the EEOC or Federal Labor Relations Authority, every state that has public sector unions has a state level uh, relations board that governs that kind of stuff you know so there is still a lot of legal jobs in in the union sphere um but those are shrinking as well obviously as unions uh become s- smaller and smaller so that to me is the main one that's possible other stuff is i think mostly fantastical people will go in there being like oh i'll be an environmental attorney and i will sue to protect this or that and it's like who's going to pay you to do that Sierra Club, you know, they 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 pay some lawyers for sure. They're not going to pay you probably. Your odds of getting that are very low and they're certainly not going to get it straight out of law school. They're going to hire, you know, the best of the best for that kind of stuff. So, you know, I don't think mm, law is a, dark. I I don't think law is a, <clears throat> is a terribly useful way to do social good in that sense. NLRB a coward also. Um <clears throat> There are some here that are... Yeah, we'll just skip, you know. Yeah. We don't have to go through all of them. Just find ones that are uh, interesting. Where do rights come from, Matt? Well, you know you know about that. They come from God. Okay. Uh, let's see. <sighs> some of these are quite, are quite technical. <laughs> People want to know about the Meidner plan and you. What do you think about that? Oh, uh, it's good. You know, I mean, I've done a, the Social Wealth Fund paper. If you want to read it, go to my website and look for the Social Wealth Fund. That's basically a, a Meidner plan uh, for America. You know, it's adapted a little bit, but it's basically the same idea. Um, and uh, Bernie Sanders had a proposal on his platform that was basically that. For those unfamiliar, the basic idea is, you know, we have all these companies and we'd like to have these companies be collectively owned in some sense. And the gradualist path towards doing that is to uh, slowly bring their equity, i.e. their stock, into collective ownership of one sort or another. That might be ownership by workers in 
each company uh, by creating a essentially a trust fund in that company and then requiring the company to slowly move its equity into that fund and therefore give workers the power of uh, that comes with ownership. That is essentially what Bernie Sanders proposed and what Jeremy Corbyn proposed in Sweden under uh, Meidner. The proposal was to do this on the sector level. So all the workers in each sector would, uh, through this process, come to own all the companies in that sector uh, by creating a fund and requiring all the companies in that sector to issue equity to it. Um, and the unions would facilitate that because they have sector unions. My proposal is basically the same as that, um, but I do it on the social level, not the sector level, not the firm level, but on a society-wide basis, which I think is, is the better way to do it. Um, personally, though I'm not opposed to the other ones per se, they're just, I would say, inferior. So, yeah, the minor plan is to me still, you know, the gold standard uh, and, and the idea of bringing uh, corporations into uh, collective ownership through those kinds of mechanisms is I still think the gold standard for a kind of reformist market socialism. Um, and I've, I've never seen a, an alternative proposal that is more compelling than that. And most of the people who work in this area, which granted is quite niche, but you know, when you find like-minded people who are, who have this, this kind of politics, you'll find every almost, almost to a person there, they have some version of the Meidner plan in mind. So it's still very live in, uh, in these sort of circles. Something that a lot of people asked about is how we navigate our religious differences in a marriage. And, they, you know, they refer to having struggles with navigating religious differences in their romantic relationships. <clears throat> I think something to clarify here is that Matt is not what I would call an atheist uh, in that even when atheism was really hot. And even like when the new atheist thing was happening in the early aughts, Matt was not into it. Matt has not like rationally considered the possibilities and, and decided that religion is not true based on inconsistencies in the Bible or something. Matt just doesn't have that organ in him that responds to like beauty or truth or faith, well, <clears throat> he, you know, it's just not in there, right? So, like, religion is passed through families for the most part, and my he's family got this is fucking not theory, religious. But, but, but it, my theory? What do you mean? <clears throat> I'm not the same religion as my family. Well, but most cases, people are the religion of their parents. <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 Matt's uh, parents also lack this organ. It's not like they sit around and contemplate religion and then decide they're against it. They just don't ever even contemplate it it's like they live in a world where there's no religion well too busy um but like but so so you see the difference it's not like there's a a decision that's been made or a conclusion that's been come to it's just that uh you know whatever thing in most people that responds to like transcendence and the sublime is just not in matt uh it's just not there uh, I, I think this is an extremely good thing for many reasons. Um, one reason is uh, it doesn't cause disagreements in the marriage uh, because he's not like fighting back. Uh, you know, he's just like, oh, okay, well, you know, oh, whatever. Uh, you know, doesn't doesn't really, uh, you know, hit him in, in any particular place. Yeah, it's like any other thing. If one person has a preference and the other has no preference, then uh, well, there's no tension at all. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, the other reason that I think it's an extremely good thing is you actually don't need 
like uh, a gut feeling about faith to be Catholic. You just need to do the sacraments. So <clears throat> there's a lot of rules, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you like rules. But but, but to be uh, to be Protestant, you know, you you have to like have this feeling about a personal relationship between you and Jesus, and like you have to have this emotional response to the liturgy uh, or to the faith or to the text of the Bible, and you know that's a sign of of this. Uh, you know, direct and personal contact between you and the divine. Catholicism outsources a lot of that to the church. So you do have people in the Catholic tradition who clearly feel that way. And those are like mystics. Like they have this intense personal connection with the divine, unmediated, uh, you know, by, by other things in a lot of cases. Um, but you don't have to have that. That's only one way to be a Catholic. You can also be like, I personally don't feel it, um, but I'm obeying and I'm doing what's asked of me. And that's as great a show of faith as anything, right? And the sacraments are efficacious whether you believe them or not. They're like penicillin, right? So <coughs> I actually believe there's great potential here for eventually browbeating Matt uh, into Catholicism, but anyway, there's no resistance. Uh, the kids are baptized, etc. They they believe in Jesus. I mean, Jane does. I don't know about Claire. Well, little children, you know. Um, but but Jane Who knows what they believe. Jane knows her Virgin Mary nightlight is taking care of her and so forth. Those things matter to her. She has a little tiny nativity scene she keeps by her bed. She likes to show me the baby Jesus. She thinks it's funny the idea of a baby protecting her. Uh, she always asked me to tell her about that. And she sometimes takes her Bible to school, though I don't think she knows what it is. Yeah, she brings all sorts of stuff to school, books and whatever. <clears throat> but that's how we navigate that. We have, uh, I had multiple people ask about screen time. Yeah, I don't give a shit about that. Yeah, we basically are skipping the anti-screen time stuff. Uh, I yeah. watched a lot of TV when I was young and it seems okay. I do worry a little bit about phones only insofar as I actually did not have a phone until I graduated law school, uh, like a mm -hmm. smartphone. I had a dumb phone. <laughs> um, you still have like an iPhone 4 or some shit. You yeah. have the iPhone I had when I was like a sophomore in college. Oh, well, yes. I've only ever gotten smartphones secondhand from Liz and... <clears throat> I don't really know the difference. I, I see your smartphone. It looks exactly the same. There's these little Mine square apps. Mine is like seven so inches larger than yours. Well, I don't need a bigger phone. Anyways, <laughs> I do remember, you know, it does. that does seem to sap my attention. But all it also seems unavoidable. So I don't worry about the screen time. I do uh, worry about the nutrition uh, to some degree, which is another thing people harp on. Um, that that's one I do take more seriously. Yeah, same. But <coughs> watching TV or whatever, I don't really care. Yeah, I I don't worry too much about that. Uh, yeah, I, I you know I've never seen never seen that as a big problem. Uh, you concerned about what happens when the social wealth fund when the stock market tanks? <laughs> no, not at all. It's actually one of the great things about the social wealth fund. Good, is actually. Because it is an infinitely lived uh, entity that has, uh, therefore, a very long time horizon, uh, stock market dips don't really matter. 
and the fact that it has a kind of um, it has a very low need for liquidity, meaning that you never really cash out the social wealth fund and you don't need to cash out to protect anything in particular. It's able to ride through those storms without selling off, which means it's also able to get on the upside. Right. Because yeah. a lot of people, the stock market collapse, they, they sell, freak sell, sell. out, they sell at the bottom and maybe they need to because they need the cash for something. The social wealth fund doesn't need the cash for anything. So it can hold on and get the full ride back up when the stock market comes up. And this is one of the reasons why social wealth funds in other countries, uh, uh, when they're well managed, will consistently outperform the market and consistently outperform other funds. Um, the the Norwegian domestic fund consistently outperforms its benchmark index uh, for this reason, um, and the their global fund also consistently outperforms the uh, benchmark, though not I don't think primarily for this reason. Um, so no, it's it's one of the great things of the social wealth fund that it's able to ride through these storms. Now someone might say, well, but won't because this is a point people have made before. Won't this hurt the dividend? Because the dividend, if you have a huge stock crash, how are you going to pay a good dividend that year? And the answer is that the dividend is going to be based on not the performance of one year, but essentially the performance of the last five years. So it'll be a moving average of the value of the fund. And so if you use essentially a five-year window of the value of the fund to determine the dividend, then these dips get smoothed out and so the dividend should not be that uh, negatively affected even by a big crash Um, and this is uh, in fact what alaska does as well and their dividends do go up and down certainly uh, with market performance but not that much because again they're using five-year averages um, not the return of a given year so yeah uh all right Someone uh, can combine two questions here. Someone asked about the science fiction that I write in my spare time. All right. They also asked if I like Dune. Uh, Dune whips complete and total ass. Uh, I would highly recommend actually reading the novels. Uh, But I also love, uh, you know, the Kyle MacLachlan Lynch version of, of Dune. I think it's a fantastic movie. Uh, I love the atmosphere. Everyone, oh, it's kind of hokey. Yeah, duh, it's hokey. That's what's great. I can actually bring in a third question here. Someone asked if we like Star Trek. We don't. <clears throat> um, we're Star Wars household. Uh, I don't watch either of them. I mean, I guess know, I have at this whatever. point now seen a decent number of the Star Wars, but I don't really, they don't move me well, in any I mean, way. Yeah, so Star Trek is like a socialist utopia there's just there's no money and well, there's I like look a, at it and yeah. people talk about it and then you go look it up and they're like oh there's a hundred episodes i don't have time oh for, there's way more than that uh, man. whatever you know like anytime i see something and they're like there's x amount of episodes i'm like i don't have time to watch all of this it's so it, it, it is a socialist utopia um <clears throat> but what i'm interested in uh I, I i don't know i don't know how to explain this um i don't uh I don't need my politics reflected back to me in my art, right? So like the reason that I have my politics is downstream of these fundamental beliefs and interests that I have, uh, beliefs about beauty and truth and goodness. Um, So from all of those sort of foundational fundamental beliefs arise my politics, but, but also downstream of those sort of fundamental beliefs arise my aesthetics, um, and so what I'm interested 
in seeing in artwork is not uh, downstream of my politics, right? It's downstream of my fundamental beliefs. Um, and so it's not actually important to me that my artwork be like, uh, you know, virtuous politically. It doesn't have to reflect to me political virtues. It just has to be sort of uh, inspiring on the level of beauty or sublimity. Uh, what or I need, I need for the characters to be like me. No, you don't. I've never seen what, like the guy in the big short? Uh, yeah, that guy. Uh, that's I need representation yeah. for autistic, um, autistic uh, n- uh, number of people with social problems. Um, we don't have enough of that. Yeah, I, the, and yeah, that guy in Big Short, Michael Burry, wasn't yeah. even autistic in real life. Oh, he's taking j- j- acting jobs from real autists. Oh, you mean Christian Bale is not autistic? Yeah, I don't know about that, but maybe he is. I don't know. Uh, he seems odd. I don't know. Uh, all 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 Hollywood you know? people seem strange in some respect. But yeah, so yeah, you know, you. They I'm up on ha- that shit. They should. I'm have up hired on that you. shit right now. Yeah, I'm doing autism id ball these days. Oh, it's like uh, it's like a uh, Rain Man. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's not. Dustin Hoffman's not really autistic. Yeah, it's bullshit. They could have gotten a real person with severe functional problems to do this role where you have to be on set and follow (laughs) cues and stuff they could have done that are you willing to take those acting jobs as they come up uh you know i have a different profession but but, uh, others i'm sure others for sure um so 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 anyway uh you know not really a star trek household i can't really explain to you why the environment of star trek always struck me as like deeply sterile in a way that star wars doesn't star wars being like obviously hokey and ridiculous but at least there are gigantic emotions happening and like big operatic feelings and and sweeping arcs and and, you know it, it is super exaggerated and kabuki in a certain respect, um, but I find that entertaining. Uh, and then the science fiction I write is is very much, um, very much different than that. Another question someone asked that I can bring in here on this is uh, if I got to write a Star Wars book, uh, what would it? What would the theme be? Uh, and the theme would be about uh, I think force force mysticism uh, would be the sort of frame. Uh, and the suggestion would be that there are certain things that are better left not understood uh, or better left mysterious. Uh, this is one of my aesthetic preferences. Uh, I like ambiguity uh, and that's what it would be about. Uh, what's every Brunig's favorite animal? Matt, favorite animal? Oh boy, you go first, let me think. Well, Matt likes capybaras, so I can tell oh, you that. Oh yeah, 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 that's right. We <laughs> saw one at this uh, questionable zoo that oh, we Oh yeah, to. that that zoo that's like an animal prison. Mm, well, they're all yeah. animal prisons, but this well, one Well, some are like animal hospitals. Well, this is like, oh, you can you can feed them and you can kind of yeah, I don't know pet about that. Them, give maybe. a capybara a Cheeto. Well, it gave him a piece of lettuce. Yeah. Um and you you know, you almost could reach down and pat him on the head. Um Why didn't you? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm supposed to respect this. And then they had this giraffe who was like a senior citizen giraffe. It and was really cute. He'd come down and eat out of your hand. Yeah, he ate, um, out, he ate a carrot Jane gave him. She thought that was really cool. We have a video yeah. of it. Uh, I like African gray parrots. Uh, I haven't seen Tiger King. Uh, we'll have to do that. Um, store brand versus name brand. Oh, Matt loves the store brand. Store brand, absolutely. I call it the people's brand. Yeah. Um, if you send Matt to the store for anything, 
and there is a generic available. You'd be like, Matt, could you go get some Cheerios? He'll come back with oat circles. Absolutely. Or uh, my, I mean, uh, some rice checks. I'm making party mix. He'll get crispy hexagons or whatever. Crispy hexagons, absolutely. Sh- show back up with those. Like, it's the same thing. Um, it's the same thing. Like, People are just being tricked. Grab me a jar of Heinz. He'll come back and be like, here is the, yeah, uh, here's the bottle great, of- great value ketchup. Great value. Uh, What's not to like ketchup. about a great value? Okay. You know what I'm saying? The here's the other thing. Here's this good. weird shit, okay? So the yuppies, they don't want the store brand. Yeah. Okay. But they love Trader Joe's, which is all store brand mm-hmm. with like a few exceptions. That's their whole shtick. Yeah. Is they make private label. Because you have to understand, it's not the case that the store actually produces this item. They contract no, I understand. with the producer who puts the label on. It's private label version of shit that already <laughs> exists more or less. Yeah. Trader Joe's is the same thing. Yeah. And so what is the problem with private label goods? If they're cheaper and so yeah. on, Trader Joe's somehow tricked the uppies into being okay with a whole store that's just store brand shit. But they go into Kroger or whatever and no, no store brand for me. I'm too big time for that. If you could snap your fingers and retroactively erase <laughs> a single cultural product from history, what would it be? This poster says theirs would be West Wing. Oh, yeah. That's tough. Because that's a lot of things to to, think think about. I think I'd have to get rid of Harry Potter. (laughs) It's a lot of things to think about culturally. Um, Every female candidate who's going to run for president on the Democratic ticket is going to be called Hermione for the rest of my life. And I just face that doom with dread. It doesn't bother me as much because I have no knowledge of what's going on when people are talking about that. Of course, that's how we started this podcast. Yeah. and so it's just sort of like people are like this is like Hufflepuff, and I'm like, I've, all right, <laughs> okay, all right, just like uh, Hufflepuff. Why not? Well, well, I don't know. You like Sex in the City? We watched that whole series for some reason. <laughs> yeah, Sex in the City is a great, it's great program um, <coughs> about uh, writers, which is like Liz. Well, one um, of them is a writer mm-hmm. uh, and a lawyer like me. Yeah. You're I a think. total Miranda and I'm a Carrie. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't remember which is which, name-wise. Yeah, um, no, Matt barely remembers my name. Um, uh, so cultural products you would erase, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a whole lot uh, that I could think <laughs> of. Like, Am I trying to think of things that annoy me or yeah. am I trying to think of things that- The only thing I've seen Matt get just fucking ground down by is Paw Patrol. <laughs> yeah i get tired of that though that's not as bad as the other some other videos youtube of people playing with paw patrol toys just grind you down psychologically yeah but it keeps the kid entertained so i'm I'm not necessarily opposed to that i do need to sometimes switch over and i will say you know i mean for you know you got to give disney some credit for putting together shows that are like bearable yeah uh that kids also pocahontas like. is good pocahontas is very well done music um, is amazing in terms of yeah the animation and stuff and like stories and the yeah. but the kids are interested because <laughs> the shit that you get on youtube or even just normal cartoon shows are just kids are the only people who can even yeah. remotely enjoy it's them totally bearable um whereas here yeah you have music being sung by like top artists mm-hmm. Uh, you know, composed interestingly and, you know, visually interesting. There's some sort of story to it. It's not just like uh, George Peppa is uh, going on the ambulance. Wee-wah, wee-wah. 
Like, oh my god. god yeah it's very raw oh, there's no story really no, no. Uh, daddy peppa long. is going to camp it's not daddy peppa it's whatever. daddy pig whatever daddy peppa is camping today do, 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 do. <laughs> just shittily animated it's really half-assed peppa pig i also i i'm a uh, a bit of an anglophobe in that uh, when Jane started using the British inflection from Peppa Pig for a while, it was really triggering for me. Jane does, yeah. She did awful. speak like Peppa for a little bit, it's which horrible. is funny. Uh, someone asked me. She still says proper. It's very strange. Yeah. Mm. Uh, or she'll she'll be like, can we go to the zoo? And I'll be like, don't talk to me that way. <laughs> I don't appreciate that. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> how do you treat those aspects of Catholic doctrine that new atheist types love to lampoon? Virgin birth, transubstantiation. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people find those uh, really hard to believe and they like, you know, the kind of uh, the positive ethics of Christianity, but they find the miracles to be difficult. I always say, if you're willing to accept the ethics of Christianity, the miracles are easy. Right, the ethics of Christianity are the difficult part of Christianity. Uh, it is really hard uh, to be self-sacrificial, self-abnegating, uh, to to uh, you know shortchange the ego in a certain respect in favor of this sort of all-consuming, self-giving love um, exemplified in the death of Jesus. If you can do all of that, which is extraordinarily contrary to what people tend to want to do um then uh, you know belief in miracles uh, you've already seen one happen right i mean you've seen a person sacrifice um you know all sorts of things i'm writing a piece on this now regarding chaplains and covid <clears throat> once you've seen people do you know something miraculous which is self-sacrifice then i i think the other stuff when you consider an all-powerful god is is fairly easy uh, someone else says, what are your thoughts on the Bible? I think it's quite good. Um, they're asking, you know. Kind of boring. With respect to it being the transcribed word of God. How Too do you, long. Shut up. How do you account for its inconsistencies and moral failings, uh, et cetera? You know, I'm Catholic. I don't worry too much about the Bible. Uh, you know, scripture is all there and it's all quite quite useful in its own way. I'm obviously not a literalist, neither was Augustine or, or anyone else with any sense that I can ever see. I am. Uh, no, you're not. And, I mean, uh, hypothetically. And uh, I don't think, uh, you know, I, I, I think it, uh, you know, it, it's full of rich meaning, uh, but like any any text, the meaning is in there and has to be got out, uh, which is why you know I think it's 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 very misguided to just throw the Bible into the hands of complete randos and say figure it out. One of the big failings I think of kind of a low church Protestantism. Uh, someone else asked. Uh, my husband went to Yale to do an Ooh. MAR in Christian theology without getting too in-depth. He subsequently became an atheist. Ooh. We think it's interesting you also got a degree in Christian theology. You seem to be even more religious. Would love commentary on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I, uh, you know, I take the first step of faith, which is to uh, make myself vulnerable to faith. I make myself predisposed to believe um, in that I don't go looking for reasons not to. This is the first step in fidelity. 
right? Any kind of fidelity, faith in God, faith in a marriage, right? Being faithful in a marriage, the first step to being faithful in a marriage is to not go looking for opportunities to be unfaithful um, and, and not, uh, not be in mind of, uh, of looking for opportunities to be unfaithful. Uh, and that is my approach to Christianity. Uh, Matt, are you going to do a solo app on MMT? Um, probably not. You're I mean, gonna I've do done a, some some. You're apps. gonna do a solo app with Matt Stoller where you just talk about Obama. I, I'd like to do another episode with Stoller, and he's up for it. We just got to figure out when to do it. Obviously, not right now because all the diseases and whatnot. Um, Somebody, uh, uh, people liked our <laughs> one episode, but that one was mostly just him talking about his book, and then if, like maybe I don't know five or six questions. So, uh, having a full blown like, let's just like hash it out might yeah. i think would probably be interesting somebody wants uh, a full accounting in 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 rapid fire mode here of the recurring brunig gags the ubi tapes uh the mbet maureen sheridan uh the ubi tapes is very simple going back to 2012 actually i think um Chris Hayes uh, sent a tweet to at Prison Culture. Chris Hayes, friend of the pod, friend of the pod. Saying that he was going to do a, a package on UBI, meaning some sort of television uh, programming. Um, this led uh, Jaron Merrick, uh, a prolific tweeter who's uh, on the left, I guess, in some sense, uh, to say, uh, to uh, surmise that Chris Hayes had uh, already created these. Uh, a UBI package, if you will, like, uh, you know, had already shot it and, you know, had it ready. And then he never, ever aired it. And so those are the UBI tapes that he wants released, um, which is his b belief that Chris Hayes has a UBI segment, you know, in the archive somewhere that he never, uh, never broadcast. Um, MBET, Matt Bruning election team was created, um, for 2016 it's to make fun of Nate Silver. Basically. Yeah, it was mostly to make fun of the uh, quant election forecasting. Um, not for any reason. Then I just thought it would be funny to do that. We of course predicted Trump very early on in the uh, <coughs> Republican uh, primary based on our uh, novel forecasting method, which was called. Uh, memes plus or rather polls plus memes minus polls um that was the name of our forecaster and we had uh, said that trump <laughs> trump was doing the best on memes and so he would win the republican nomination which he did end up doing um there were a few of us me carl bayer and uh, at the time larry website uh, were on the team. Um, also, the Brooklyn Juggler actually was on the team. <laughs> this is one people didn't realize. He shot a few videos for us from Las Vegas uh, about uh, about the election uh, as part of the MBET. Um, that's gone now. I mean, I don't know. The joke's over, I guess. Uh, what am I going to do about that? Uh, Maureen Sheridan uh, is also the same person as Larry Website. Um, and... You know, we've gone over this many times, uh, pretended to be a 40-year 
postal veteran and you know acted like they were a veteran of war but uh were a veteran of the post office which pissed a lot of people off pretended to be a conservative um and actually got a ton of conservative followers back in the day <laughs> there were all these conservative follow trains you could get on yeah and this person looked plausibly like a conservative and so they would follow you know hundreds you know <laughs> tens of thousands of accounts and get follow backs and and they would upset people you know basically tweeting as a conservative but with sort of increasingly weird and strange <laughs> sort of things um, that was patriot mom patriot mom one of the best accounts ever on twitter yeah. um and yeah so that's it basically yeah those are those are some of our big gags uh <laughs> someone asked uh, you know so this is more of a serious question do you think as covid gets really bad any of the really bad stuff will be reported or a reporter choose to look away or not go to hospital ground zeros or not get access in the first place and will social media reporting be censored? Uh, I can tell you this. Um, as it gets bad, it will be reported. And it will be reported whether or not reporters can get access to hospitals because people who are working in hospitals will get in touch with us and we will report uh, on what's going on. So come hell or high water, uh, we're going to do what we need to do. I hasten uh, to remind all of our listeners that you can contact me anytime with news tips. Uh, if, me too. No, Matt, seriously. Oh. Oh. Um, like I actually do quite a bit of reporting. I've broken news many times um, and I, I take that part of my job seriously and I enjoy it a lot. So uh, highly professional operation here. Uh, where I can um, get information from you. I have secure channels available to me um, that you know I can accept tips from. So if you are uh, working in healthcare or any other industry where interesting things are happening or you have other ways of uh, accessing information you think people ought to know, it's in the public interest, uh, I, I would love to work with you on that. So you knew how to get in touch. I'm uh, elizabeth.brunig at gmail.com. It's in my Twitter bio. Uh, so, you know, just a little public service announcement there. Uh, let's see. There was uh, well, There's one question about writing a book and... They ask, you know, is it is do people read books anymore? Is that a good way to get your ideas out there? I will say, as a general matter, I'm a little uh, skeptical of how much people read books. Books are very long. I know from writing online that people read shorter stuff um, more than they read longer stuff. And if you're going to write something long, which we do obviously put out long projects, as you know, as you might have noticed, they're very... Uh, a lot of pictures, very, you know, pretty, you know, pleasing to read. Books are just text. Um, so, so some people maybe power through it. Uh, I do have a fully fleshed out idea for a book, which is basically um, one of those books that's like, oh, this was a book I would have liked to have been able to read when I got interested in this subject. But it would basically be like, here's how to do, here's how to create an egalitarian economy. And... And it, and it it would be written uh, on a kind of almost like um, abstract theoretical level, like here's a model, uh, you know, uh, as opposed to books now that I read in this area, which are very much just kind of like, here's just sort of like a, a laundry list of just kind of bullshit stuff that is like in the air and that people are interested in in the moment. I want to kind of create almost like, almost like you know an old sort of um 
classical economist uh, way or Marxian way of yeah. treating it where you're like, here's the whole society and here's how the society works. And if you think about it, money goes this way and money goes that way. And you have capital income and labor income and transfer income. And you have uh, to get the money where it needs to go. You're going to need programs like this. And also you'll need to answer the question of who owns what and how here are the way, you know, and I, I think, you know, if you could lay that out and maybe a hundred page, 150 page book, and it would be very useful. Matt says um, he's going to self-publish. I am very interested in self-publishing. Um, I think, and I might be wrong on this, so I, I need to do more research. I believe on some level that um, some of the desire to publish with the publishing houses uh, is driven by kind of empty prestige that um, motivates a lot of things in the cultural and entertainment sphere. You know, ooh, my thing is being distributed by this or that company. Um, and in some cases, that can be helpful if you have a hard time getting, um, you know, if you otherwise would not be able to f get your stuff in front of your audience and get your stuff in front of the people who want to buy it, um, and, you know, then that value add is important. But I don't know. I feel like I have a decent ability to get my stuff out to my audience and maybe even an audience beyond that. And if you self-publish, you can keep 70, 80% of the revenue, depending on precisely how you do it. If you publish with uh, a publishing house, I want to say it's more like 10%, 15%. 15%. So even if, even if they can generate six, seven, eight times the sales, you know, it's not necessarily worth it. Anyways, um, that's enough for questions. Maybe we'll take some more later. Yeah, we got some more. We got um, more questions uh, in there. Uh, Jane has begun doing a thing where she says she'll ask you a question and say yes or no, which okay. I find really cute. Yes or no. All right, folks. Uh, hang in there. Be hopeful. Tune in to the live streams and all the other Brunig properties. Uh, you know, take care of yourselves. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.